Welcome to All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Vitalman. Today's guest is a two-time senator and chair of the Stanford Student Enterprises Board, Jonathan Lippman. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Cricket. How's it going? Thanks for having me. It's uh, Friday, so waiting for those classes to be over. I think you said you're a philosophy major. What drew you toward that? I'm a double philosophy and computer science major. I sort of always joke that I'm studying philosophy because I need to get a job someday, and I like computer science, and it's fun for me. In all seriousness, I think philosophy can be really good at giving you a lot of... Number one, it's just really interesting to me, particularly questions of what it means to live in a democratic society, how we can all get along with each other, what are ethical things to do, when should you quote-unquote act ethically. It, it teaches you a lot of skills that are really useful no matter what field you go into. I think it teaches you really specific and rigorous critical thinking skills, the ability to break down problems into parts really well. I think it teaches you how to write really clearly, succinctly, and accurately. I think it also teaches you how to see something from another person's perspective, and it just it trains you to have a little bit more compassion for people who might think differently than you, to be able to have a discussion with them and find points of agreement and disagreement and sort of sort through things in a way that I think could be really helpful to a lot of people in society these days. That is super cool and very relevant because I am publishing an interview with Maron and Rob Rich. Oh yeah, great. So I'm super excited about that. And I, I wish we had time to dig much further into that conversation because I would love to talk about ethics and technology from a student perspective. When it comes to your future career, are you thinking about going into something ethics and technology related? The piece of advice I got about career planning is actually from the third professor of that class, Jeremy Weinstein. And he was like, you know, I look at the friends in my life who have tried to plan their career and then the other people who have just sort of jumped to the next thing that got them really excited. And the people who just did the jumping to the next thing that got really excited <laughs> ended up finding more things that they were excited about. I think that's all to say I've tried to not plan my career and to see what the next cool thing is or the next thing that seems really impactful to me. Also really excited about that course. I was actually an RA for them when they were first starting it up. So it's great that they're doing that. But hopefully something that is helpful to society as a whole that wakes me up every day and gets me excited. Life of purpose and fulfillment, right? Before we get too far down the rabbit hole there, I wanted to ask you about your Senate career. This is your second year in the Senate, so I'm sure you've done a lot of work. I know that a lot of people going into the ASSU, including myself, start with an idea for a project. What was your idea for your project in your first term? And did it carry over to your second term or did you decide to add something else onto that? My first term, I worked on four main projects, I'd say. The first project I worked on, a first year requirement and future of the major. Long range planning committees were sort of spinning up then. They had just released their initial reports in the fall there. I went around to a bunch of students and I asked them what they thought about the issues brings up a lot of the, the questions we've been talking about here about how can an education help you find a career that you find fulfilling? Um, how can a specialized form of study versus more general study help you with that? I personally thought the proposals were really interesting and I thought it would be helpful if they got some student reactions to it. So I put together this report. I worked with Erica a bit on it, who was then president of the ASSU. Went around to like 40 or 50 students, sat down with them, was like, here's what these two planning teams are thinking. And 
what do you think about that? And what do you, how do you think about your personal career objectives and how your education fits into that? And so we wrote up all the reactions. We had some recommendations. And then the second project I did was on sexual violence. And obviously it's a important issue at Stanford as with other universities. Thankfully, something that now gets a lot more attention than it might have in the past. One of the things that I thought would be really helpful is to write down a list of recommendations, more formal report of a lot of the things that student advocates have been asking for for years. By writing it all in one place, it's been really helpful. There was an external review of Stanford's programs to both support people who have been impacted by sexual violence and also to prevent it in the first place. We sent them the report and a substantive portion of them were very, very much so in line with what was written in that report. I don't know, but based on how their final report came out, it seems like they looked at what we had written pretty closely. That was another project I did. I think the, it was a learning experience for me. It gave me the opportunity to talk to a lot of the advocates in the space, learn what was on their mind and put it in all in one place, which was helpful for our advocacy and has led to some really great steps, including the university is going to roll out a four-year prevention plan instead of more legalistic compliance training that we have to do over the summer. And then some programs at the beginning that are required and then optional programs over the course of your, the rest of your education. It's going to be a lot more comprehensive and have booster sessions and maybe have consistent cohorts. I'm really excited about that. And I think that hopefully came out, uh, I know it's been something that's been asked for for a while, hopefully gathered a little bit of momentum. Another project that I did, I did two other projects my first term. Another one was working really closely with Eric and Isaiah on the grading discussion that happened over spring break last year. We eventually went to a credit, no credit grading system. I was faculty senate rep at the time, so I worked with them on a survey there, a lot of the data analysis, putting together their presentation. I was also coincidentally a student member on CUSP, the Committee of Undergraduate Standards and Policies, which the Faculty Senate delegates a lot of things having to do with academic standards, including grading to CUSP. So I was part of those sort of first discussions in CUSP as we were forming our proposal there. And then the last project, which was sort of been torpedoed by COVID, I worked with an artist on a 50 ways to take a break at Stanford poster, um, which we were hoping to hang in all the dorms of just like, hey, here are like 50 fun activities that are like Stanford specific and really talented artists who's graduated now, uh, drew them all up and then COVID hit, so never even left campus. So it's a little bit less relevant, but I was really excited about that as you know, it's a way to encourage people to take time for themselves and make sure that you're doing things that you find fulfillment in besides school while you're there. I think that's really cool that there is a, a four-year prevention plan. Have you thought about asking the faculty to maybe integrate some sort of a class on consent culture for freshmen? It, it's important to distinguish between trainings where maybe the, the primary goal is compliance. State government and the federal government have requirements about how it should be educating people. They understand the norms about how you should interact with people, particularly in a sexual context. And I think the idea of a freshman course is an interesting one. Do you want to find a trade-off between what's going to be most effective? You don't want to take up people's time and you want to keep them really engaged. So it's something that they feel is important and don't get bored by it. 
And you also want to look at, at resources. And maybe it's the case that a, a freshman year class would be the most effective. There might be other things that might be more effective. I think actually Beyond Sex Ed is really engaging and it sort of starts the conversation for a lot of people. But at the end of the day, I think it's really important to do like evidence-driven methods. So a lot of other colleges and Stanford to some degree as well run studies on different programs where they try a program out and then they see how it affects their rates of sexual violence and try and determine whether or not it, it's effective. So I think we sort of got to go with the science on this, try a bunch of things out and see what works the best. I hope that the administration continues to take feedback into account. One of the things that we think about a lot is advocacy styles. A lot of times because there is confidentiality involved in working with the university and because promoting progress is very slow at times, a lot of people engage in more aggressive, even sometimes slightly disrespectful communication with administration. And I am not exempted from this. I have definitely said some things that I regretted afterward because the tone has been not Great. When it comes to advocacy, do you think it's more useful to take an institutionalist type of perspective and to promote change within the institution? Or do you think it's better to view ourselves as separate in terms of the relationship that we have with the university? It's a great question, and I think it's something I've puzzled over a lot. I, I understand the distinction you're trying to make, but I'm not sure that the right distinction is necessarily one between working within the system and working without the system. I think the more important distinction, in my mind at least, is trying to get things done through formal power, feeling as though you have enough power to not bully someone into doing something, but to make it so that they have no choice to do something other than that. That contrasted with espousing your position in a way that you convince people that your idea, whatever it may be, the right idea through the power of persuasion, through the power of working with people to figure out what differences of opinion you might have on an issue and working through those, maybe adjusting your thing. If you think about the university as a student in terms of formal power relationships, as a student advocate, you're probably going to be pretty disappointed because students don't really have a whole lot of formal power at Stanford. It's mostly invested in the board of trustees, faculty, administration. Students have more formal power over a few things in that we can bring things up in a lot of different venues and have formal power in that sense. And we also have more formal power of student affairs. Honor Code is a great example where the ASSU has formal power. I think it's much more important to recognize that you may, might find yourself being a lot more successful if you focus on convenience convincing people that you're right. Convincing people that you're right can totally be within the ASSU or outside of it. You know, it can be an op-ed. Protests can be a really powerful way of convincing people that this is something that people feel very strongly about. Raising things in discussions and faculty senate is a, is a great forum for debate where if you can convince the faculty that what, what you think is right is right. They have more formal power within the university, but they have more credibility maybe than students do. So if you can convince them, I think that convinces other people that it might be a really good idea. So that's all to say, I think some of the, the ways I've seen the ASSU been most successful is when it can convince other people their ideas are really important or the things that they're advocating are really important. Pressure could be helpful, but formally force people to do something or another. That maybe is a less successful approach. And both approaches you can do within the ASSU or outside of the ASSU, but I think I'm definitely in the camp of trying to convince people that something is right or wrong. Speaking of the Faculty Senate, you said last year that you helped convince them of the credit, no credit 
grading policy for last spring quarter. This year, there has been a conversation about what grading system should we have, which resulted in the usual normal grading system. But that clearly causes an emphasis in the income disparity, but also just any sort of extenuating circumstances. I have a friend in India right now who is taking classes and has had to adjust his entire life schedule just for Stanford. And that is unhealthy in a lot of ways. You could talk about hormonal imbalance. You could talk about mental health. There's so many things that you could talk about with that. So people have the option to take classes for satisfactory no credit or for letter grading. Some departments are not accepting satisfactory no credit toward people's majors. What is your perspective on that? It's a really important issue. To briefly return to your previous comment, I actually think the op-ed you guys wrote was a form of persuasion and a really good job convincing both the administration and the broader Stanford community that it was important to, to include student perspectives. So I actually think I'm on board with you there. On the grading decision, this is something that's been a long discussion. Obviously, there were very big public debate that occurred over spring break to decide the credit nor credit grading system. And then going into uh, this current year, I was actually leading the discussions on what should the grading system be. So we sent out a survey. We wanted to make sure that people got a chance to voice their opinions. And the survey basically said that there was a preference to not go back to normal. Depending on how you looked at the data, the conclusion was that there was no statistically significant difference overall in terms of whether people preferred credit, no credit, or the optional scheme that's implemented for this entire year. I think there was a lot of really serious discussion because you're totally right that being on campus is an equalizer and being on campus allows people who have some of the disparities or have less good home situations. A lot of the stuff that you're talking about, the inequalities of access to education and campus is a place where everyone sort of lives in the same dorms, more or less. Everyone gets food cooked for them all day. There's cleaning people who clean the bathrooms. There's a lot of ways in which campus allows for everyone to focus on their academics and also reduces inequalities in learning to some degree, of course. It's not perfect on campus, but I think we're realizing with COVID that it's oh so much worse without everyone being on campus. It's a really tough decision. And uh, honestly, what it came down to in the summer when I was talking with folks and we were deciding what we were going to advocate for, <laughs> it came down to we thought we might have been able to do fall quarter credit, no credit, universal. But there was going to be no way that we were going to be able to convince them to do the entire year or until the pandemic let off universal credit, no credit. So I, I think we made a little bit of a pragmatist decision. Having the option is better than just going back to a completely grading, normal grading system. Obviously, it's not perfect, but hopefully it's better than the alternative, which was just to go back to regular. I think there's a lot of merit to thinking universal was right, but faculty really felt very strongly that wasn't going to be a, a good option option. I'm sympathetic to some degree where they felt like there was a lot less motivation, but I probably don't fully agree with them that that shouldn't have been considered really seriously. But it came down to a pragmatist decision. And then but there have been some departments that have not accepted it. And I said during that faculty senate presentation, and I end by pretty strongly, which is the only way this grading scheme can be successful is if departments accept it for their for their requirements. Otherwise, it, it sort of defeats the entire purpose. I haven't talked with them. I don't know their reasoning for not accepting it. Maybe they have a good reason that I'm just not thinking of, but I really think that it's important that departments accept it. Otherwise, it sort of leaves students stuck between a rock and a hard place, which is which is the worst thing you want to do. They talk about students having less motivation, but I almost think that students might have more 
in that there's less pressure and pressure can definitely be a good motivator. But it also means that people can discover whether they have passion for a subject. Like you were saying earlier, passion leads to career success. I'm sure plenty of people will disagree with me. If I can just jump in there for a second, I think you're totally right. So for instance, the physics department actually required that all of their courses be completely credit, no credit for fall. And they just made a decision on their own, which they're able to do and forced all of their instructors to do it. And I haven't been in a physics class. And because things are online, I actually haven't talked with enough students that have been in physics classes, but supposedly it's going really well. Grades do two things, right? Like grades, a form of their evaluators, and they're also incentivizers, right? So it incentivizes you to work hard and it incentivizes you that these are the important concepts that you need to learn in the class and says, okay, if I make this assignment more weight than this other one, then that's where you should be spending your time. They incentivize you to do the work that you need to do to learn things. Then there are also evaluators. It might be helpful. It's helpful for things like grad school and jobs and for other stuff to figure out how well people understand the material. So serve this dual purpose. I haven't read the literature on it, so I'm sure people think about this in a much more sophisticated way than I am, but there, there are probably plausible replacements for both pieces of that, right? You could think that maybe a final essay is the thing that like your ability to produce a really good honors thesis or something like that is a better evaluator of your learning over four years at Stanford. You could think of one final test, which is my understanding of what they do in European countries and in Britain is the way they think about evaluating learning. The issue is once you lose sight of the fact that it's an incentive mechanism and it's also an evaluation mechanism, you lose sight of the bigger picture about why those are important in context and you just end up focusing on the grades themselves. I think it can be really detrimental to learning, particularly if the grades are are not well designed and they encourage you to just study to the test instead of actually building up learning over, over the course of a course or over the course of your four year experience in a major or something like that. It would be really interesting and the university should be thinking a lot more creatively. And frankly, I'm sure there have been people that are thinking more creatively. It's just maybe not gotten into mainstream teaching as much about different ways that we can sort of replace the functions of grades and still have a really successful learning experience where people focus on the things we actually should be getting out of learning, which is preparation for a life of purpose and the ability to do what you love. And grades probably for most people actually do a pretty good job of that, but they also create a lot of stress that maybe doesn't need to be there. And maybe it turns out that there are other forms. I can say personally, I think grades are a reasonably good motivator in some senses and that they've encouraged me to get a lot more out of my classes than I, than I otherwise would. But at the same time, I think we can't lose sight of why we have grades. And I think the bigger reasons are the much more important things than the grades themselves. They're just the, they're just the mechanism we use to try and encourage those things. And it's those things that are important, not the grades themselves. Absolutely. One of the things that I like that my professor is doing, I don't know if it's in place of an exam, but one of the things that my professor is doing is like having a one-on-one -on -one interview with each student to talk about the subject and to talk about what students want to learn and why they're motivated. So I think it's definitely a good place to start. Obviously, I can't make professors do anything, but I think that would help tailor people's learning experience so that they are motivated. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to ask you, what kinds of projects are you working on this year with the Senate? 
One of the projects that I worked on was that grading thing. The project that I worked on before that was the administration doesn't get nearly enough student input. And I think most people probably agree with that. It takes a lot for the administration to put together ways to get input. And because they have to do it really well and make sure it's completely fair and everything like that, there's a lot of you know, they're subject to a lot of regulations and legal concerns and whatnot. I think there's a lot of startup costs for them to do that. I found that the ASSU isn't subject to those things and we can collect a lot of student input. And then the administration tends to actually be really excited to then get, get the results of that. So I was a little bored over the summer, I have to admit. So I uh, created a survey to send out about uh, when people wanted to be on campus. It was right back when they had released the fact that I think they had at that point said freshmen were going to be in the fall and seniors were going to be in the spring, but they hadn't determined which other classes were going to be in which quarter. So I sent out a survey. I asked everyone, hey, what quarter do you want to be on campus for? I worked with them to send it to the incoming frosh. We got a ton of responses and I just put together a, a report on it. So I'm a computer scientist, right? So I had some fun on thinking about different ways we can then actually create like different rankings. That was the first thing. They followed my recommendations with one exception where I had assumed that they would want to minimize move-ins and move-outs so that they would want to keep people on quarter contiguously as much as possible and that they would also want to have mixing so that they would want to have different classes meet other classes. I came up with a slightly different recommended thing, but if you relax those two constraints, which I had, you actually end up with the allocation that they eventually came up with. So that was one project I did. Then I did the grading thing. Then during the fall, I've been focusing a lot on civic engagement. I was working with some of the Stanford Votes people. They're really amazing. It was a great collaboration. So Sean Casey and Liana and some other folks. Sean and I had an idea. I think a friend of his gave it to him that Stanford should really be giving election day off. I thought about it and I'm like, you're right. I was working on this proposal with him and it morphed a lot. And where we've ended up is we think Stanford should really give students a day off, but it shouldn't be just a day off where you go do whatever you want should really be like a civic day of service. We're thinking about exactly what it'll be, but my opinion at least is it's like a day where you're expected to vote first and foremost, or if you're eligible. And then second, you're expected to engage civically. You're expected to take, it's supposed to be a moment to reflect on what it means to live, live in a democratic country. It's supposed to be a chance to reflect on what it means to be a citizen of a community, whether that's the community that is the town that is Stanford whether that's a national community, whether that's the community you come from, learn what it means to get along with other people there. And I think it's really sad how a lot of that community mindedness has eroded a little bit. A lot of it's due to technology probably, but a lot of it actually came before that. I mean, so over a book I was reading, Bowling Alone, which is a book by uh, Robert Putman, who talks a lot about this and has sort of done a lot of the sociological data finding to prove that people in the U.S. are a lot less community focused than they were before and less good citizens and they vote at lower rates and other things like that. So it's really important as an institution of higher education. It's always interesting the, the tension between telling students what they think important moral values are and giving them based knowledge that then they can go create their own values. And you're kidding yourself if you think there's any way to do it without importing some moral values. But I also think it's actually important to convince people that there actually are some things that are really important. In fact, it actually says in the founding grant of Stanford, and the Stanfords must have agreed with this too, that Stanford should be inculcating the love of government or something, which of course is a very olden term that 
probably doesn't sound quite right to people today, or at least it doesn't sound quite right to me, but is a university educating young people, particularly such a university that probably implicitly prides itself on educating the next generation of leaders and some sort of thing, that it's important to be a good citizen. It's important to cultivate strong community ties. It's important to make people feel like they belong. It's important to make, figure out how we're gonna participate in democracy. Sustaining democracy is more important than ever, no matter which side of the political spectrum you're on. I think people think that. I think it's really important for Stanford to set aside a day. And in fact, in setting aside a day, you communicate a message saying, we think that civic engagement and being a good citizen of Stanford, of the country, of the world, is more important than teaching classes on one day so we're going to host a bunch of discussions about what it means to be a good citizen. We're thinking of having a really high profile speaker come and talk about what it means for them to be a good citizen and what they see as civic values. And also just to have discussions with other people about how they think about it and how we can all figure out how to have real dialogue with each other in a much less nasty way than, than we're seeing today. So we're sort of at the stage where we're trying to convince the faculty. We made it over the first hurdle of them basically saying it's an idea worth thinking about. And in March, we're, we're talking with a committee they've designated to look into the proposal in, in more detail. And we're also thinking about how we can try and raise money to support it, or if that's even a possibility. That's another project that I've been working on. I think it's extremely important, particularly in this day and age. You go back and you read some of the ancient Greek philosophers, and of course, they also talk about the importance of education and teaching people how to live in the societal norms we've created today. And figuring out some way that we can all get along with each other, which I think is really important. Educational institutions have a really big responsibility to be a part of. That's another project I've been working on. And then two other things. So more recently, obviously, there's a big debate around whether or not fraternities should be abolished or fraternities and sororities, I guess, should be abolished or whether or not they should be dehoused. And there was a discussion in the undergrad senate and graduate student council and there might be a faculty senate discussion on it. And I think my take is what would come next if they were to house, right? The way I think about it is yes, obviously fraternities and sororities bring a lot of ills and have a lot of structural problems and are probably treated unfairly well or something like that. But it's also really important to have a robust social life on campus. My response to the housing resolution, which I stand by is a lot of the stuff you're saying is right, but before we can make a decision on this, we have to have a plan that's actually better to move to. So I've been working with Lenny, another senator who's great, and some folks from Abolish, and then we have some folks from IFC and ISC as well, and getting all the same everyone in a room, and we're putting together a survey to see what the student body thinks on this issue and think about how, how we might find other structural ways we can set up social experiences that are better for everyone. Interested to see how that's going to turn out and I hope we can sort of find a way to move forward that everyone's happy about and feels, I mean, excited about. Because of where it's located, it actually is a lot worse than other places. You go to similar colleges elsewhere. Stanford doesn't even have a college bar, which is sort of crazy, or it doesn't have like a college town next to it, right? We live in Palo Alto, which is very expensive and nice, and certainly we benefit a lot from that in innumerable ways. But I think in terms of having fun, they were sort of relegated to campus. And because of the fact that campus itself is pretty isolated, and it's like a 15 minute bike ride to anywhere, and 
there aren't other social activities that are at the right price point for students. We suffer a lot from that in ways that other colleges don't. Stanford has a fund deficit. It's important to fix it. I think the university sort of realizes it too. I'm actually also part of this planning team of building something called a town center which is the idea that the university is going to rebuild basically the white plaza area and try and have it be a place of much more social connection, a place of intellectual dialogue and exchange. And I'm really hopeful that post-pandemic, the project can take off a little bit. That's a 30-year project, probably. It takes a while to rebuild such a large portion of campus. I think it's important to think about how we can cultivate fun, which is like a really important part of the college experience. Stanford is sort of at a disadvantage, and we need to think creatively about how to approach that. And the last project I've been working on is as SSC board chair, we manage a $20 million endowment on behalf of the ASSU and the payout from that endowment. And it's more like a savings account that we invest in, that we use as an endowment. So we invested in public markets mostly, and then we use the returns from those investments to both grow the endowment and then also to pay for a lot of the operating costs of the ASSU. We have a full-time staff, obviously. I mean, the ASSU basically runs a bank amongst other services and whatnot. We use some of those payouts to pay for things within the ASSU, like stipends and whatnot. The endowment is invested in public markets and a lot of different stocks. And obviously students feel very strongly, or at least a portion of the student body feels very strongly about making sure that the companies it's invested in are companies that we all really agree with and agree with their purpose, or at least definitely that we don't think are morally heinous or we really disagree with. I've been working with Richa, who's the SSE investment manager, and this is a process that was started by Erica last year as well. I'm thinking about how we can invest our, our funds in a way that everyone feels proud of. I think we've sort of moved into a generic financial products that basically are just, we think we're, we're going to measure things on three criteria, ESG criteria, I think it's environmental, social governance criteria, and just try and pick stocks that are more or less better on those three axes of goodness. We're also really interested in figuring out how we can take that to the next step. And a piece of that is we have to get a lot more information on what students actually think are morally heinous companies and what, what are the ethical investment or ethical divestment or ethical investment priorities of the student body. So what we're thinking of doing is we're going to try and place on the spring ballot every year a question of what are your preferences? What trade-offs are you willing to make in support of those preferences? So it'll basically be a question like, please rank the following things from morally heinous to not or something. And then also what financial losses or what increased volatility, probably more accurately, are you willing to incur in support of the ASSU not investing in a company? And we've really struggled to figure out the right way to frame that and to actually give students an informed, rational way to think about that trade-off. It's not an obvious trade-off, right? Like, does investing in a company or not change their behavior? Does the ASSU saying publicly that we've divested from it or something like that change public opinion? This is the whole conversation about ethical investment. And I think we as a democratic body in the ASSU need to be responsive to what people think more importantly than other institutions like Stanford or something, which have a very different stakeholder model. I think we really want to make sure that people are well informed about what that trade-off actually entails and what the benefits you get from divesting would be, and also what downsides of doing it are and why you might think you don't want to do it. And figuring out how to surface that trade-off is a challenging thing. And 
we're trying to figure out the best way to structure that in, in some sort of question and then also including a question on, on what people's priorities are. Um, are we investing in GameStop by any chance? That's a great question. The way we invest is we don't actually invest in very many specific companies. We right. invest in broad market indices that have most companies in the US in them. We probably indirectly have a, a GameStop position. We're much more interested in investing in the entire US economy or the right. entire world economy or the entire world um, bond market or like a loan, loan market, right? Why do you think a college bar is important? I use the college bar as a little bit of a, for just like ways that are not university provided, that are places students can go have fun, right? It could be a bar, it could be a cheap restaurant, it could be a cheap movie theater, things that are not university provided, that are places students could go have fun that are cost accessible. Whereas Palo Alto is really expensive, it's pretty far away. Usually you need to pay an Uber to get there. It's like a thing to go out for. And it's not something you can just walk down the block for. And I think certainly some people in, enjoy themselves by going to drink alcohol. And those people find, would find a lot of enjoyment from having a more price accessible bar that's closer. And that, that's one aspect to stand in for a larger group of things that are non-university provided fun activities that are cost accessible. You mentioned a 50 ways to have fun at Stanford poster. Are you still thinking of having that put up in campus somehow. What were some of the suggestions that you uh, had recommended there? I forgot one other project I've been working on, which I've been making some infographics with a really talented team of artists to explain the different resources that are available for people who have been impacted by sexual violence. Also to explain some of the university processes for responding to sexual violence, which are complicated for a whole host of legal and moral reasons. So to try and make them a lot more accessible. We're hoping to actually hang up those posters and also this 50 Ways to Take a Break poster around campus. The, the 50 Ways to Take a Break poster is pre-COVID. So we got to add in social distancing stuff to encourage people to make sure that they're behaving responsibly um, in a way that's uh, safe. So, but I, I can read a couple of them. So like one is picnic at the Oval. Another is color on the law school terrace. Um, another is find a bench and call a friend or um, visit the chickens at the farm or stargaze in the main quad or fountain hop, or leave a nice note on someone's bike seat, uh, snuggle under a blanket, check Aww. out the cactus garden, leave your roommate a nice note. Fun activities where it's like stuff you wouldn't necessarily think of doing, but you go, you look at it and you're like, oh, actually I sort of do want to do that. You know, it's a Friday night, I want to go relax. That's a good idea of something I might go do. So it's a, like a psychological nudge, a reminder of sure. uh, people to go do stuff that um, is relaxing and fulfilling. That was Jonathan Lipman, a philosophy and computer science major, two-time undergraduate senator, chair of the Stanford Student Enterprises Board, and perhaps most importantly, a proud member of the Stanford University class of 2021. This has been another episode of All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Beidelman. Please feel free to email any questions, comments, and feedback to communications at assu.stanford.edu. Thanks so much and have a great day. Hey.